Um, what do I miss? Oh, and I, I have to admit, I've just signed up for what's called an X pack. So it's a, it sends you Canadian products in the mail. So I'm uh, things like dill pickle chips mm. and Twizzlers <laughs> and things like that. So I miss those things on a trivial level. Hello, everyone. Today on the podcast, we have uh, Christina Tarnopolsky or Prof T. Uh, she used to work in Toronto on Bay Street for about a decade. And now she's a professor here uh, in the humanities at... Uh, uh, now in the social sciences. Now in the social sciences yeah. at Yale and US. And we were very glad to have her on the show. And today, basically, we're going to be finding out about what made her make this really drastic change. So before we go into your career and everything mm -hmm. and all the complicated stuff, do you want to tell us a little bit about where you grew up and maybe what kind of experiences informed your initial career choice? Okay, so I grew up uh, mainly, I mean, the most important thing to know is I grew up with two academic parents. And so it was always assumed that I would go into academia as a full-time job. Um, I grew up with my mother. Um, my parents were divorced, so I grew up with my mother in and, in and around Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So we were in small towns. And then it was uh, at, when I was 15 years old, I went to undergraduate uh, in philosophy and political science at the University of Toronto. And that's where I thought I was doing a pre-law or pre-academic uh, field of study. Uh, so you went to university when you were 15? Yes, so I skipped two grades um, and then it turns out going to starting university when you're 15 is not the greatest idea. You tend to not, you might be intellectually mature enough to do it but not emotionally mature enough to do it. That's really funny because actually my, my dad went to university when he was 16 as well and I feel like he says the exact same thing. Yeah. He couldn't yeah. really date anyone, no one wanted to hang out with him really because yeah, exactly. you're so much younger you're than You're so young, yeah. yeah. You feel much younger than everyone else, so you it's hard to find friends. Um, and you're also not quite mature enough to discipline yourself with all the kind of partying that goes around, at least uh, that, that was going around at the University of Toronto. Uh, so just moving back for a second, uh, yes. what were your parents' academic interests? So my father was a law professor. Um, he had uh, briefly... Uh, practiced law for two years, decided he didn't like it, and then became an academic. And so he taught at University of uh, Ottawa, as well as York University, both in Canada. And my mother, um, well, and so then later in his career, he was appointed to judge of the Supreme Court, the uh, Court of Appeals of Ontario. So he was a judge uh, towards the end of his life. And my mother was a fine artist, so she taught uh, lithography and life drawing. So they were both. And then my uncle was a historian. My grandfather was an entomologist, so he taught biology. So my brothers and sister both did academic careers. Right. So, okay, so you have this so, whole lineage. Family coming. of academics, yeah. yeah. So what then made you decide, you know, academia is interesting, but I want to go work on Bay Street? So I had a very, let's say, uh, torturous uh, undergraduate career. So I was fine for the first two years. Um, I was in, uh, I started in chemistry and uh, English and quickly figured out that I wasn't good at either of those. And one of my English professors said to me on my paper, this would be an A paper if it was a philosophy paper. So that's what kind of twigged my interest in philosophy. So I started to major in philosophy and political science. Um, and I did fine for two years and then I got a perfectionist problem which I, so I became obsessed with Kant's first critique dropped all my classes just worked on Kant's first critique for an entire year had thousands of pages of notes couldn't turn it into a paper and so I had to drop all my classes 
The next year, I became obsessed with Rousseau's Emile, wrote thousands of pages, didn't go to any other classes. So I had now been at university for four years, but only had two years' worth of credits. And so I had a friend at that point who said, you know, I think you need to take a break and do something else that will actually somehow cure your perfectionist streak. And so that was the... the um, and this was all happening when you were 17 or 18 years old, right? Exactly. Because yeah. I think, Nad and I agree, when we look around at our peers, I can't imagine anyone saying... I'm just in love with writing <laughs> a thousand pages on Kant's first critique. Yeah. Yeah. If only, if only even I now, stop. I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, so I guess, how did you decide? I'm really in love with philosophy. I really love. I'm, I have this problem with being a perfectionist. I keep writing, but I can never turn it into a formal essay. But how does that translate into Becoming working in finance? Stock, right. So at the time, I had a friend who was the bookkeeper at a software company in Toronto at a startup uh, software company. Uh, and she said, look, just tell them you're an accountant and I'm going off to Concordia. She was going off to Concordia in Montreal to pursue her master's degree. And she said, and so she said, you can take over my job. So I told the boss I was an accountant. She taught me accounting principles on the week, one weekend we went into the office and she taught me everything. So I started that summer as the accountant for this software development firm. And about halfway through the summer, my boss came up to me and he said, you know, I get the sense you don't want to go back to school. So why don't you, he said, here's a ticker tape, which is all the information about stocks, bonds and futures. He said, we don't really know what it means, but if you can figure it out and here's a book on C programming. So if you can figure out C programming and how to make screens for security entry, then you can work here full time. So that's when I decided to uh, quit. Uh, school permanently and then start this job. And you learned all of this by yourself, just yes. reading books. Yes, reading books, reading uh, C programming books, reading some of the programs of my fellow programmers, so looking at what they were doing. And then also calling, there was one woman at Financial Post who helped me figure out the stockbroker stuff. I'd phone her like five, five to ten times a day saying, what's a QCIP number and so on. So at this point, was there like Google and Stack Overflow to search these things or no? No. No, wow. there wasn't Google at that point. Uh, so it was definitely just reading books to do the research and phoning people and asking them. I mean, there was uh, Google was just starting, but it didn't have any of the, especially the stock stuff. It didn't have that kind of information. Right. So what did um, a typical day look like for you then once you started that full-time position? Yeah. So the nice thing was that because we were a startup company, all of us, there was only about 10 of us in total, all of us had to do a few different jobs. So I'd sort of start the day at 9 a.m. and I'd do research for about three hours. So I'd figure out what, what, how stocks function on the market, what different kinds of stocks are there and so on. So I'd do that for about three hours and then I'd write program specifications for another couple of hours and then I'd actually do the programming. In a larger company, <clears throat> those would have been totally different right. jobs. And th yeah, so then I'd spend the last part of the day just programming. Um, and that was, I mean, the whole thing was fun. The research was fun and easy because of the philosophy courses I'd taken at school. They, I actually found once you know how to sort of analyze logical arguments, you can figure, pretty much figure out any book or task that you're given. Um, and then the programming was just like solving logic puzzles all day. So it was really fun. And uh, that was how I spent my days for almost uh, nine, between nine and ten years. So what, what was the company called? It was called Multipath Business Systems. Mm -hmm. And what it was, was it was a startup uh, that was trying to compete with IBM um, on developing a back office portfolio management system for middle-sized mm -hmm. stockbrokers in Toronto. Right. So is it still around today or did it get sold off? Did it uh, close down? 
So I decided, when, the, the year I decided to go back to finish my undergraduate, the two bosses sold it for millions and have never worked since. <laughs> so they're millionaires. I'm back, uh, was not a millionaire, but I went back to studies when I was right. about So 29. you didn't have any equity or anything no, on? No, there was no equity uh, sharing, profit sharing scheme. But what, what was interesting about the job itself, too, was that nobody... Uh, who was working as a programmer or, or a researcher had actually done computer science as an undergrad. They were all musicians or linguists or philosophers. And so the two guys sold the company and then they turned their garage into a recording studio and just spend the, their whole lives playing music. So do you think it's maybe maybe once you left, they're like, oh, now, now it's not now as fun anymore. So we got we to gotta let it go. <laughs> yeah, after me, there was no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, no, they, they had had a couple of offers throughout the time, but then I think they finally got a, a really good offer by a larger company that bought, I think it was called Star Data, that bought them up and made them a subsidiary of, them, of that company. Right, so I guess before when you made that decision, how old were you at the time, sorry? So now I was about 28 or 29. So what made you decide, I'm 28 years old, I'm going to go back yeah. and finish my undergrad? So I knew that I loved philosophy from even my perfectionist streak made me realize that. Um, but I also didn't, had never experienced what it meant to be bored to tears. So after nine years, so as I said, originally the programming was really fun, but then after doing stocks and bonds and options for nine years straight, I was beginning to become pretty bored with it. And because we didn't change applications, there wasn't any learning. So I decided I may as well go back to school, try and finish my undergrad and then go on to grad school. So how did that conversation go with your parents? Did you say, hey... By the way, I'm going to go back and finish. Yes, undergrad yeah. Now. Well, my parents all, never really knew the extent of my perfectionist problem as an undergrad. So they thought that I had done four years and that I only needed one credit to get my undergraduate. So I had to have a big talk with them before I went back, and I had to tell them that I actually had two years uh, to do. But because I'd uh, spent ten years working, I, I said, "Look, I can pay for myself now." So that's right. So that that's good for them to hear. That's yes, yeah. that was helpful. So how did it feel going back to undergrad as... Well, what was, gr what was interesting is I knew I had to overcome the perfectionism. And in some sense, the stock job helped me do that because it, it was an, a matter of doing something that I liked, but I wasn't passionate about. And so I had to do things that were just competent, that met a certain standard. And that gave me the sort of notion that when I go back to school, all you have to do is write a paper that's a good paper on Immanuel Kant's first critique. You don't have to, when I was in my perfectionist streak, I actually thought that I had to write a paper that was better than Immanuel Kant's first critique. And that kind of insane standard was what was sort of ruining my undergraduate right. career. So I had much, a much more realistic standard, of, and so that's what really helped me uh, finish my undergraduate. Right, so you finished your undergraduate at the University of Toronto. Where That's did you correct. go from there? Then I went uh, to the University of Chicago for graduate studies, and I went to the Department of Political Science, and I did my uh, master's on uh, Michel Foucault and, and Pierre Bourdieu, and then I turned to Plato for my uh, thesis, which I then turned into a book. Along that path, were you ever thinking, hey, maybe I'll go back, maybe... I want to go back to working in... I, off and on, I did. I mean, but the nice thing about academia is that you're always learning. I mean, what I liked about the stockbroker uh, job when I first started it was that I was learning about stocks and bonds and C programming. And so during those first five years, it was really interesting. The nice thing about academia is you're always learning. So you're always learning new books. There's always new things to research. So 
as I tell my students this, you never, as an academic, you will never be bored with your job. You might be stressed, but you'll never be bored. And that's a huge uh, plus for the uh, world of academia. So I've never really been that drawn to go back. Um, however, I'm now thinking that I, I'll work in academia until I'm 60, and then I'm going to move back to Toronto, and I may look into AI and try and get a job in AI for five years, for the last five years before retirement. So how do you, how do you think they'll look at your CV and say, why is this 60 year old? Yeah, well, interestingly enough, um, the, in AI, they're actually looking at people with philosophy and mm. psychology degrees to help them develop right. that software. So I think it's a good time for people with that background to go into computers. And um, my friend who was a graphic artist for 30 years of her life, just got a job doing software development. So at, at Toronto Dominion Bank. Mm. So they look pretty, you know, they look well on alternate careers. So, that, you know, I like to tell students that don't worry that you, that you haven't done a particular kind of study in order to prepare yourself because uh, there's enough uh, companies out there that realize that skills in one area do translate really well into skills in another area. Right. Uh, so you can you did your PhD at the University of Chicago. Yes. Uh, and then where was your first, I guess, uh, teaching assignment? So the first job I got, I uh, got a job at Harvard University, and I was there for about three years. Um, I knew I wanted to eventually end up in Canada, and so during my third year at Harvard, two jobs came up at the University of Toronto and, and McGill mm -hmm. University. So I applied for both, and I got the job at McGill. So after three years at Harvard, I moved to McGill to Quebec. Right. So I know you're kind of biased. I'm kind of biased, too. But which one's better, McGill or U of T? U of T. Yeah. Uh, U of T is definitely... I think U of T is one of the strongest universities in North America. I think it's underrated. And, you know, I, find, I found U of T harder than Harvard, you know, what the, the, the level at which you're expected to produce works is much harder. So, yeah. So I guess my question then is, how did you end up here at Yale and U.S.? So that's an interesting uh, question. So I was working at McGill. I'd been at McGill for about seven years. And I had a friend at Yale University um, who was actually working to develop. He was at the very beginning of Yale and U.S. College. And he was, uh, he's in their political science department. And he was helping them design the uh, college. And he wrote me an email one day and he said, you know, Christina, if you have any grad students who might be interested, we're t starting up this new interdisciplinary college that's going to have a world curriculum. So just let me know if you know of anyone who might be interested. And I wrote back and I said, I think I might be interested. <laughs> and he was like at first shocked. He said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, it sounds like the perfect job because I was already starting to get into more interdisciplinary work. My next book on Plato is going to be about Plato's use of the genres of tragedy and mm. comedy. So I was already sort of having more sort of communication with people in comparative literature and classics than I did in political science. So Yale and U.S. as an interdisciplinary curriculum really appealed to me. And then also the world, the, the notion that we were going to be doing uh, Buddhism and Indian philosophy and uh, Confucianism really appealed to me. Right. So were you here from the very beginning then? Yeah. So I was definitely part of the founding uh, generation, I'll call it. Um, so I, that, that founding, the founding group got to go to New Haven for a year and develop. So we actually had uh, classes from uh, Buddhists and Confucianists. So we had people come and visit for two weeks and we'd learn these different theories. And we spent the entire year designing the curriculum um, for philosophy and political thought and modern social thought. Mm -hmm. 
So reflecting on how these courses have panned out over the last four years, has it been? Uh, is there anything you think... Yeah, I guess this was the fifth year, fifth year of the sorry. college. Is there anything you think went exceptionally well? Anything in retrospect you think could have been done better? Any changes you would have made? Um, I, I, any changes that I would have made were made. I mean, I mm -hmm. think what's nice about Yale NUS is that it's a very self-reflexive uh process that we're engaged in. So uh, at, at the end of every common curriculum course, the professors get together and kind of reflect on what worked and what didn't work, and then we make small changes. So I think by now, the common curriculum courses are, you know, much better than they were, they were than when we, when, when we first started Yale NUS College. Um, so most of them, I mean, there's, I can't, like, we tweak them a little bit every year, but I think they're all pretty solid courses right now. Okay, I just want to uh, shift quickly to yep. a th question I think you're uniquely in a position to answer, and it requires a bit of background. But I think uh, one concern people have, and in fact, there was an article just about this issue by, I don't think people at Yale and like him a lot, but uh, Jim Sleeper from <laughs> oh, Yale yes, University. Oh, yes, I saw that he just had an uh, article. So he just published an article. Uh, basically, the article is about um, we view as students and maybe faculty to a certain level before upper administration as Yale and US as this mission, you know, I mean, it, everyone says the model all the time in Asia for the world. Right. Um, but in the similar vein, universities like Princeton, Yale, Harvard, even U of T and McGill in, in Canada have the same kind of motto, right? Like in service right. of the nation, something like that. But it tends that the most competitive, um, and I'm using that term very loosely, students mm -hmm. at these universities, you know, do a major like PPE or uh, political science or something like that. But then a lot of them end up going into something like that's very corporate, software engineering, management consulting, right. finance. How do you feel about this kind of dissonance between, I guess, the service mission that lots of these colleges have and what kind of ends up happening with lots of the graduates? Well, I, I actually think... Uh I think it's fine that that uh, phenomenon of students going on into these corporate jobs, because as I said before, I think what you're getting at university, you're getting a bit of a specialty um, in your major, but you're really getting skills that you can apply to whatever job you go on uh, to pursue in, later in life. Um, so I think that you can, so I think that even while they're serving this mission of, you know, a global education for their students, they're also providing skills that will translate well into any set of professional jobs that you want to pursue. Right. But I guess I'm more asking, do you think that, for example, Yale and clearly uh, is a lot of tax dollars from Singaporean citizens that comes out of, you know, money that would otherwise be spent on X, Y, Z, you know, government program or in the U.S., you know, because they're tax exempt in a certain way. Um, I guess my question is, is it strange that um, you spend this whole basically four years learning about the intricacies of philosophy or, you know, the ways in which these groups of people are disadvantaged? But then and I, and I feel yeah. as a student, too, I say, well, I kind of want to live comfortably when I graduate. So I end up, you know, working at I guess it's different for you right. because you kind of took a break in the middle of your undergrad for a different reason. Right. Uh, but I, I'm just wanted your thoughts on kind of. Do you, do you ever feel strange, you know, uh, teaching a course on this really complicated kind of intellectual pursuit, but then the person graduates and goes on to, you know, work in finance or software engineering? No, because I always secretly think they're going to follow my path, <laughs> where, the, where after four years, they're going to realize this is not quite it. Not, and not so much go back into academia. I realize that's uh, unrealistic. 
Um, but I do think that Yale and U.S., the curriculum really is different. I mean, you mentioned places like University of Toronto and Harvard, but when I taught there, it was all Western curriculum. Um, and also, it was very uh, focused right from day one. You didn't have a common curriculum. And so I think that kind of background is going to produce some really interesting people. And so I think a lot of our students now who are going into management consulting and so on may find in about four or five years that, hey, they want to branch out and do a startup company and, and you know, engage in AI for, you know, some really interesting uh, application. So my, I'm betting that our students are going to produce some very interesting companies in the future. I just wanted to follow up on a little side note you made yeah. about how it's not realistic anymore to go into academia. I guess a, lo a complaint a lot of people our age also have is that academia seems more difficult than ever. Like uh, tenure positions seem more, uh, the rate at which people accept are is much lower. A, do you think that's true? And B, if it is true, what advice would you have for people who still want to go directly into academia and how they can uh, pursue yeah. that passion? Yeah, I think it definitely is true of North America and maybe Great Britain, where mm -hmm. there's a real move to have adjunct positions. Mm -hmm. I don't actually think, one of the nice things about universities in Southeast Asia and Singapore, uh, particularly, is that there hasn't been that move to adjuncts. So they're still running on a 10-year system. So I would say if you're willing to stay in Southeast Asia, then there's lots of, there is a future in academia for you. But you do have to, to you know, think very hard about an academic career if you're thinking of pursuing one in North America, because now it's become so competitive. It's probably the most competitive job in the world right now to try and get a 10-year track position at a top university in North America. So I would say... Uh, <laughs> think about different parts of the world if you want to think about an academic career. Right. Yeah, actually, my parents told me uh, when I was applying to college, like, don't worry, whatever you, whatever you apply to, whatever you end up majoring in, yeah. you can always just become a professor in that thing. So whatever you do, it's, it'll be fine. But I said, you know, uh, I'm asking all my friends who are already in university, and they say, no, man, there's, you know, because yeah. of that whole shift, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think now uh, it's I, uh, a lot of my colleagues I've talked to in North America say that they actually actively discourage people from be going into academia because the adjunct sort of situation is so difficult. Do you know what caused that shift? Is it just cost cutting? Is it? Well, a lot of it is blamed on neoliberalism. Like the, so, you know, it makes more financial sense instead of hiring a tenure professor whose salary might be 100000 a year or something like that in North America, I'm not sure what their salaries are. You, instead, you could hire five adjuncts for 20000 each, and you can teach, and then you can have a lot more tuition coming in. Right. So you're, it's all sort of been that kind of move to have more professors teaching more courses and more students paying tuition so that universities can generate more money. Mm -hmm. So I think it really is the sort of neoliberalization of university that has led to uh, the adjunct problem. Yeah, so I just want to ask a couple of concluding questions just sure. to bring the whole thing together. Yeah. So looking back, um, do you think that 10 years you spent doing uh, software programming and working with stocks, mm -hmm. do you ever think, you know, what if I spent those 10 years on academia instead? And maybe I would be, you know, 10 years forward in my intellectual pursuit. Do you ever have that regret? Yes, there's there's a little voice in my head that says, you know, you could have been great if you had done that, if you'd gone straight through, you might have written a great work, uh, you know. So there, there, is, there is that voice in my head. Um, but I try not to listen to that voice too often. And uh, when you're talking about transferable skills, can you get, I think uh, what some students would complain about is that they hear the word transferable skills a lot, they hear it, so by the professors, by marketing departments from Yale and U.S., uh, but 
Could you give us some specific things where you really felt, hey, that's something that I'm seeing here that I really saw in my coursework or I see now later on in my career in academia? Yeah, so one thing that I really felt gave me an advantage over all of the programmers and everything else uh, that I worked with at Multipath was the ability to read text carefully and to really get the gist of them. And I, I actually benefited from my University of Toronto background because we had uh, Straussian. So these were professors who believed in reading like one text and for an entire year. So we spent, for example, uh, two two-hour classes on the first line of Rousseau's social contract. So these people really believed in close textual readings. And I now try and do that in some of my courses like ancient Greek political philosophy. And once you can read a text carefully, it doesn't matter what that text, whether it's a philosophy text on with by Plato, or it's a legal text, or it's the stockbroker text, or it's a C programming. You're able to read those things more carefully than people who are actually trained in those fields. And so, and what's what's also good about that is that you're more able to rise to the level of researcher as opposed to programmer, mm -hmm. and that's where you're making a lot more money. So if you're interested in money, it's actually still good to have that skill because in we started with just 10 of us as programmers, and then I later became a researcher because I had these skills in reading closely. Right. Well, that, that's very comforting to hear. <laughs> uh, so just uh, one last question. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about what your academic work right now is focused on or if you're writing a new book? Uh, what that's about. Yeah, so I'm writing a book that is tentatively called Rashomon Republic after a movie called Rashomon, which is basically uh, a film that tells the story of a uh, incident through four different lenses, four different characters. And so I'm looking, I'm doing this with the Republic where I'm reading Plato's Republic through the lens of ancient Greek satyr play, tragedy, comedy, medicine, and history. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's my new book project. I've got one of them, the Seder play down, and now I'm turning to look at how Greek tragedy influenced Plato's Republic. All right, sounds great. I think that's it for our serious questions. We have one more question that we just yes. ask everyone, and has nothing to do with the topic okay. ever. If you had to hide a giraffe in Singapore from the government... A giraffe. A okay. giraffe, a full-size giraffe, uh, where would you hide it? Um, <laughs> probably in one of those giant trees on one of the branches. So of they'd the only see tree. the legs. Yeah. And the legs would look like it would kind of meld in with the trees so that they, the, the I mean, I'm not quite sure if there are any brown trees so that the giraffe mm. would serve as his legs would be like camouflaged, but that would, that's where I'd put I it. think that's probably the best, best answer we've got so far, right? <laughs> yeah. All right, but thank you so much. Uh, okay. Great My to pleasure. have you on. My pleasure. Uh, it's been yeah. wonderful.